The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Deuteronomy chapter 2, looking at chapter 2, and also we'll be covering, in a sense, chapter 3, although we're not going to read it all, as we try to hit the highlights of this book, looking tonight and reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. And as we read this, realize that you're hearing a lot of strange, distant-sounding names and places, and that's things that are hard to place on the on the map. We'll try to sort through that, but remember what we just sang applies to all of that. God's providential dealings on behalf of his people are revealed, and we'll see that as we study this text. Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Moses is speaking, and when he says we, he's talking about we, the Israelites, the people of God. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will, give, I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as, as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion Gibber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar, and Ar is one of the main cities in Moab, I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, But the Moabites called them Emin. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. 
And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. Until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zazumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Torim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon, Behold, I have given into your hand Shihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This is the word of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Lord of our God endures forever. We're on the third sermon in Deuteronomy, and we're still at the beginning of the book, of course. And we, re- we are reminded that the book of Deuteronomy was given as the people are poised to enter the promised land. And we've seen an outline of the book, and we know that we're in this beginning portion of the book in which there's this, there's this historical review of what's happened up until this time when they're about to enter the land. And we know that a large part of this book is also going to be a summary and a recounting of the giving of the law and what the law means, and also a renewal of God's covenant as they are prepared to enter the land with its blessings if they believe and obey and its curses if they turn away from the Lord and disobey. And in this first part of the book, Moses is reminding them of their recent history that it hasn't been too long since some of these things have occurred. We saw in chapter 1 that it was mostly about various rebellious decisions of the people of Israel, that caused great setbacks. And we learned lessons from that. And we saw the promises of God still being revealed to the people. But now we come to chapters 2 and 3. And even though I didn't read the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to talk about those chapters and those parts as well. And we see in chapters 2 and 3 that Moses recounts some of their great victories 
that came as a result of their obedience to God, an obedience that resulted from faith in the Lord and in his word. And so likewise, we are encouraged to move from fear to faith and trusting in this faithful God. I would like to first give us a brief historical overview of what we've read here, and then I want to get into our main points. But just to kind of get you oriented to what we've read, because it is hard to just jump in. I remember a couple of weeks ago when I started to prepare for the Deuteronomy series, I started pulling out Bible, Bible guides and atlases and looking at the back of my Bible and trying to figure out what are all these names? Where are these people going? I finally ordered what has turned out to be my favorite atlas of the Bible, the Moody Bible Atlas, and it's edited by a professor I had in seminary, so it's especially meaningful to me. Barry Beitzel is his name, to put in a word for that book. Anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's good for a, bu- a doorstop. But here we have the Israelites at the beginning of chapter 2, and we find that they have been journeying in the wilderness for many days. Later on in verse 14, we find that that's 38 years. And in chapter 1, we had seen that uh, it was an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb uh, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So what should have taken 11 days because they refused to enter the land because of the evil report that 10 of the spies brought back because they didn't be believe, and then when God told them to go south, then when they foolishly attacked and were defeated, it took them 38 years to go 11 days, essentially, because God was preventing them from entering the land, as we read about, till that original generation died. And so we find them here in this period of wandering, and finally the word of God comes to them, Verse 3, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Just think when they finally got that word. Finally, it's time to enter the land. It's kind of like if you ever get lost on a trip and the husband won't stop or ask directions and his GPS doesn't work anymore or anything, and you wander around the roads and you don't know where you're going. I can't know if that's really a very good analogy, but just gives you some sense. Maybe there have been times that we've been lost for a while, and I'm not going to say it's my pride or anything, but uh, finally, maybe after a half hour of being lost, you get back on the road. Just think how they must have felt. And they're given instructions now for what's going to happen as they get nearer to the land. And there are some key people groups we have to think about in chapter 2. We find that they have to pass through the land of Edom, where the descendants of Esau live. These are long-distance relatives. Pastor Walker was talking the other week about how it was they had been waiting to enter this land since the promise was given to Abraham for about 600 years. And Esau, remember, Jacob and Esau, wasn't that distant in time from Abraham. And so it's you know, they're distant relatives back there, maybe 500 years. In these 500-plus years, Esau's descendants have grown to a great nation, Edom. And God tells them they can't have Edom's land. He's given Edom their land. And he says the same for the land of Moab and Ammon, which are descendants of Lot. 
other distant relatives back there in Abraham's time. And so you begin to think, well, when do they get land? And we find that eventually he's going to give them the land of the Amorites. And chapter 3 is about this major battle with Shihon, king of the Amorites, of king of Heshbon. And then later in chapter 3, they defeat Og, king of Bashan. Both of those nations, all of these nations we've talked about, are east of the Dead Sea and even southeast of the Dead Sea. So that as they go through the nations they're not supposed to attack or go around them, they finally get to east of the Jordan, what's called the Transjordan area. And eventually, those conquered areas are given to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, East Manasseh. So those are eventually tribes that inherit those lands. So in chapter 2, we see that they're not supposed to dispossess the nations of, of Moab or Ammon or of Edom. And they're called to rise up. But then I didn't read chapter 3, which has the defeat of Og, but it also tells us about the distribution of the land. And it tells us of this special arrangement that after these conquests take place, after Shihon and Og are defeated, all the men, all the warriors are required to go with the remaining tribes with Joshua and conquer the western parts of the land, the land that we think of promised land per se. And they're called to do that without fearing what happens to their children and their wives, whom they have to leave behind in the Transjordan area. That's described for us in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. And God makes a specific promise to them in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. He promises them, he says, So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. He promises specifically to fight for them and not to worry. And then finally, chapter 3 ends, we're going to eventually look at that, with the fact that Moses is forbidden to enter the promised land and why that is. We briefly see that. Well, that's just a brief overview. But from all this historical data, it's here for a reason. Moses is speaking to the people to encourage them to trust in the Lord and to obey the Lord. It's been a difficult wilderness wandering period. And so I would like us to bring points of application about trusting in the faithfulness of God. The first point is this. Trusting in the faithfulness of God helps us to receive the Lord's discipline with perseverance. Trusting the faithfulness of God helps us to receive the Lord's discipline with perseverance. We see this first in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, as I have already said. This very brief journey of 11 days turns out to the wilderness wanderings of 38 additional years. In other words, it took them two years to 
carry out the exodus, to pass through the Red Sea, to go to Mount Sinai, receive the law, and all that it was, was involved with that, and finally travel up to Kadesh Barnea, where the report of the spies came back. And then for the next 38 years, God had them wandering. They were supposed to travel south immediately, but they disobeyed, they attacked, and we saw that the inhabitants of the land, the warriors, uh, were busy like bees flying at them. The analogy is used. And they learn from this discipline. What do they learn? Think of what was going through their minds and their hearts through 38 years. The original generation was going to die during this time. They learn something about the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of disobedience. They are under the discipline of God. God will forgive and God will restore, but they are learning that it is never worthwhile to sin against the Lord. They will learn how vital and central it is to trust and obey the Lord. They will learn through God's loving discipline. I want us to think about the discipline that they received. Finally, they're getting close to entering the land. And the scripture tells us that this is a time during which God blessed them and disciplined them. It's interesting. We're going to look later at the blessings that God tells them that he gave them during this time. But this time was both a time we, we, we read that God blessed them, but we know also that he was disciplining them. Both of those are always true for every child of God, that every discipline God wisely brings into our life is discipline from God, but it is also blessing. I like this one quote by a commentator by the name of Fernando. He says, The punishment or discipline included negative consequences on earth. So in other words, every discipline of God is painful. We know that. Hebrews tells us that. The punishment or discipline included negative consequences on earth. Sin does hinder our progress. But if we are open to God during this time, in other words, if we're trusting in the Lord, we know that he will look after us and meet our needs. Discipline can be a lonely time, and sometimes even God seems to be silent. But God is working in the midst of these experiences. I like the way he put that. We think of another discipline that took place, David, in his great sin. And Psalm 51, that wonderful description of his repentance and his turning back to the Lord. And we think of the, the painful consequences on earth David experiences. The baby dies. We know that. David fasts and prays. The baby dies. Bathsheba would have other children, we know. But the first baby died. And then we know that there was much strife and much conflict and much heartache that came upon David's own family and, in fact, on the entire nation because of David's sin. But notice that in this psalm of repentance, I just want to highlight a verse or two. In verse 8 of Psalm 51, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And then later on in verse 12, Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David was going to go through many years of consequences to his sin, of the the painful discipline of God. But already as he pens this psalm, notice that David is praying about the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. He's praying for the restoration of that joy. I think that he's praying in a sense that he would live in that joy, that it would be regularly restored to him, that he would be upheld by that joy of fellowship with God. You see, it's possible to have that blessing of joy in the Lord and fellowship with God and knowing the presence of the Lord, even when you continue to to experience the ongoing consequences, the, the sometimes painful discipline of God because of sin. And so, first of all, trusting in the faithfulness of God helps us to receive the Lord's discipline with perseverance. Secondly, trusting in the faithfulness of God gives us a heart to obey our God. Trusting in the faithfulness of God gives us a heart to obey our God. And so, back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God tells them in verse 3, they've been traveling around long enough. Finally, at the end of verse 3, he says, turn northward. And then there are these commands. God is again giving them a command And the neat thing to see is this time they're going to obey the commands of the Lord. They don't always do that in years to come. But remember, this is the generation that essentially grew up in the wilderness. This is the generation, now that generation that did not believe the spies and failed to obey, they've all died. It's going to describe that further in chapter 2. And now this generation is going to obey. Believe God's faithfulness, and they're going to obey him. And he commands them some some very specific things. He commands them that they're about to pass through the territory of their brothers, the people of Esau. This is Edom, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. That phrase, be very careful, is used in Deuteronomy 65 times. It's used in the whole Old Testament 440 times. It has this sense, pay careful attention to this. If this situation arises, be on your guard. Don't act rashly. Don't act impulsively. They are commanded here, do not contend with Edom, with Esau. Do not fight them. In other words, as in war. And and God explains all of that. I'm not giving you any of their land, not even the the part that the soles of your your feet step on. I have given this land to them. And then there's this special command in verse 6. When you pass through Edom, buy the food you need, pay money for it, and buy the water you need. If you use water from a well, pay for it. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. Now, there's a very understated statement in verse 8. Notice what it says, and you probably miss this because you can't just read this and understand what's going on here. It says, So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir. Wait, weren't they going to travel through Edom and pay for their food and 
water. And we know from elsewhere what happened here. Edom said, no, you can't cut through our land. Take another way. They were going to cut across Edom, going from west to east, a little bit north of the city of Petra. Maybe some of you have been there, the city that's cut into the rocks. And if you watch one of the Indiana Jones movies, you've seen the city of Petra. That's how, that's how I know it. That's as close as I've gotten to Petra. But since Edom said no, and since the Israelites obeyed, they had to go south, about 80 or 100 miles south, south to uh, this place called um, Ezion Geber, and that was right at the north point of the Gulf of Aqaba. And then they had to turn east and kind of skirt Edom on the east side and go the whole way back up. I know if you're not looking at a map, you can't see all this. But think of it this way. I went on a canoe trip with the YMCA scout camp when I was a boy. And we did a 90-mile um, canoe trip down the Susquehanna from way up in northern Pennsylvania. It was a great trip. It took about five or six days. Well... So 90 miles, think of that. Think if you wanted to cut across uh, the bridge to York. It's about a 20-mile trip from looking at the map from where they were to where they wanted to be to go to their next stage and to Moab. Instead of going 20 miles over an easy pass, they had to go up the whole Susquehanna to the northern parts and come back down the other way. I'm thinking that way. It's a long trip, and it was through desert wasteland. Now, I'm making that point of how hard it was because of this. Moses refers to the people of Esau as your brothers. And Moses does not even mention what we find elsewhere in Numbers about the Edomites' refusal to let them through. In other words, trusting the faithfulness of God helps God's people to obey, and obedience very often takes the form of costly love. The Edomites probably had an army that was a lot weaker than the Israelites. The Edomites probably would have lost the battle against the Israelites unless the Lord had turned things around the other way. And in that ancient Near East culture, to have an army come out and say, no, you cannot come through here. And an army, of course, is going to be a ragtag band of farmers and so forth who have weapons of some kind. But if an army would do that, that was really an attack on your honor. So really, to uphold your honor, you really should attack them to uphold your honor. So the Israelites didn't uphold their honor. They loved their brothers, the Edomites, They went the whole way south and up the other side of Edom. All this. Why? Because they had learned something. This new generation had learned something from their parents' disobedience and unbelief. They had learned that it is well, well worth it because they trusted in the faithfulness of God. They believed the word of God. They believed the realities that the commands, the law of God is good even if it doesn't make sense to us. Can you imagine what some of them might have been thinking? But Lord, we can defeat them. And it's just 20 miles through this little pass and we'll be where we want to be. Let's go. No, 
It may not make sense to our minds and our understanding, but God has a plan. He tells them, go around. I guess it's not too hard to make application to our lives in terms of the conflicts we might experience and how, if we trust in the faithfulness of God, we will be given a greater heart to obey the Lord in conflict we may be experiencing when it's costly to be a peacemaker, when a soft answer turns away wrath or anger, when we might feel like we've got to uphold our privileges and our prerogatives and our rights, and the Lord says, no, trust me and obey me, and I will bless you. It's so interesting. Moses just says, so we went on away from our brothers. Moses didn't dwell on this past offense. An interesting thing. A biblical principle for approaching conflict is that you practice the costly obligation of forgiving from your heart. You may not even be able to do relational forgiveness if the person, if your opponent doesn't repent and doesn't ask forgiveness. You may not be able to exercise relational forgiveness, but the Bible always calls us to give heart forgiveness, to exercise heart forgiveness for not continuing to dwell uh, on the past offense, to, to be telling others about it and holding it against the other individual. Yes, when we are sinned against, there is always hurt. Think of how the Israelites felt hurt. Our brothers, they turned us aside. Now we've got to go to the desert, you know, 90 miles south and back up the other side. But in order for your hurt not to turn into bitterness in your heart, you must be exercising forgiveness. That's just one application of this. The main point here, though, is if you trust God's faithfulness, you will be trusting God's word to the point of being able to obey the word of God when it counts. Third, trusting in the Lord's faithfulness means that we believe and rest in our God's redeeming love. You might say this is a theological center of trusting the faithfulness of God, to trust in his redeeming love. And if you think of the context of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy stands like right at the end of the foremost redemptive act of God in the Old Testament, the Exodus. That was the primary act in the Old Testament of God's redemption. And it pointed ahead to the greater redemption in Jesus Christ, that Jesus would die on the cross and redeem his people from their sins and deliver them from the bondage of their sins. And now this second generation is about to enter the land. And even as he is talking about what happened in the wilderness time, I want you to look at verse 7 of chapter 2 of these wonderful promises of what the Lord has done, the blessings he gave them during that time. Look at them. We see four of them. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. That's number one. The Lord has blessed you. These are all evidences of his redeeming love. He's blessed them in all the work of their hands. I kind of thinking, was thinking, what are the works of their hands during that wilderness time? The manna came every day, but they did have to go out and gather it. And they had animals and things like that, and they must have had to try to feed them and water them and so forth. There were all the daily kinds of chores that they had, but 
the Lord said, even in this wilderness wandering, and some of it through some of the most desolate, dry, barren wilderness you can imagine. I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures of what it looks like. The Lord says, he's blessed you in all the work of your hands. Secondly, he knows you're going through this great wilderness. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. That's like that song we just sang about the Lord and whatever my God ordains is right. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. It's like trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not under your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your ways. What a precious promise that verse is. It says that God knows our way. He knows our going, even if it's in a great wilderness. And maybe you feel like right now your life is in a wilderness time. God knows you're going. He is with you. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. And that's really at the heart of both the Old Testament and the New Testament promise of God to be with us. And we know that everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ through faith, God's great love, God is with us. And then finally, you have lacked nothing. He'll spell that out more in chapter 29, verses 5 and 6, that familiar refrain, the clothes, their clothes didn't wear out. They had the same clothes. They must have gotten tired of these clothes. Have you ever gone to your closet to pick out something new? Just think, for 38 years, 40 years of the same clothes, but miraculously the clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out in that harsh, barren land with all the rock and sand and everything. They didn't have any bread. And, but that's a positive point Deuteronomy 29 talks about because, in other words, they didn't even have bread, but God provided manna for them. And they had no wine or strong drink. They had to go that whole time without any wine. I think that's a good thing. I think it's great that they didn't have any wine or strong drink. I've seen enough families ruined by wine and strong drink. I want us to think about the fact that what about the original generation that was going along with them during this time and slowly dying? You know, the ones who disbelieved and disobeyed. And what I believe is true is that we cannot say for sure which among them were saved or not. We can't say none of them were saved, and we can't say all of them were saved. Certainly they were judged and disciplined by God, and I believe that some of them certainly must have been saved and certainly come to an understanding of how they had disbelieved. Certainly Caleb and Joshua, the two spies, they certainly were saved, trusted in the Lord. We're kind of importing New Testament terms of being saved back in the Old Testament here. But what I believe is that certainly there were some who were saved and some who weren't saved. They were enduring the same privations, we would say, the the wilderness time. But they were also, if they trusted in the faithfulness of God, they were experiencing these blessings as well. And then you think of Moses himself. I want to bring him up here because chapter 3 ends with Moses pleading with the Lord. I want us to turn ahead to there. Turn to chapter 3, verse 23. I think it's worth it that we read the six verses about this. This is Moses pleading with the Lord. Listen, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, 
You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? So Moses begins his prayer with worship, with recounting the greatness of God. But he's going to ask the Lord something specific. Verse 25. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. So he's asking the Lord if he can enter the land. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, the people that is, and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pishkah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. So in other words, at least God gave Moses the satisfaction of seeing the land, the promised land, from afar. God told him, stop praying about this. It was going to be soon time for Moses to die. But then look what he tells him in the final verse or two. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. In other words, they're about to go into the land. Here's Moses recounting his prayer to the Lord and the Lord's answer. And the Lord says no, but the Lord also gives him a task, a calling to prepare Joshua because this is going to be a great and difficult task. He tells Moses to encourage and strengthen Joshua because it will fall upon Joshua to lead the people for this next phase. In other words, as we look at Moses and this request. And as we think of the first generation and the second generation, we're seeing that everybody in their own unique way is called to believe the faithfulness of God. And in doing so means that we rest in God's redeeming love. Whatever way that might be worked out in our lives, in our suffering, in sickness, in our financial state, in our perplexity with what God's doing, maybe in terms of guidance as a young individual, and am I getting married, and Lord, why aren't you doing this, and oh, I'm not getting the career that I had hoped to have, and all of these things. We may not be able to understand that in this life, but what we can do is trust God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. Moses was really essentially being called to do that. Those who had initially disobeyed and disbelieved God were called to do that, and the second generation was called as well. It's a tremendous challenge for each of us. It reminds me of Romans 5, where we see this clear declaration of the gospel. Romans 5 begins with this description, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How? What better way can you summarize what the gospel is? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What blessings! Access to God, peace with God, hope of glory. And then right away Paul says, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. He talks about this chain of sufferings, Suffering produces endurance, produces character, produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And the reason that is, he says in verse 5, is because God 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, that holding to the redeeming love of God in Christ, even if it means in suffering and in difficult endurance. Well, finally, we come to trusting, the last point, trusting in the faithfulness of of God enables us to move ahead without fear. There are a number of places in chapter 2 where finally Moses says to them, rise up. Notice in verse 24, he says it. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand, and he talks about Shihon, the king of the Amorites, and then eventually Og as well, the king of Bashan. Notice he says, this day, verse 25, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. What a description. In other words, all the peoples in the area there shall hear this report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. The victories that are recorded for us in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And by the way, I just have to mention Og, the king, because later on in chapter 3, verse 11, we find that he's the, he was the only one left of the remnant of the Rephaim. You boys will especially like this, maybe you girls as well. But it says there, this aside, that he had a bed of iron. And at the time that this was written, and it was still in this certain town of the Ammonites, and the length of the bed was nine cubits. And if a cubit is a foot and a half, that means this bed was about 13 and a half feet long. And it was four cubits wide. That's about six feet wide. That was a big bed. In other words, he was of the race of the Rephaim, this king that was defeated and killed by the Israelites. Part of the holy war that God had called them to, to possess the land. Very specialized warfare. It's not still in in place in our day, and we're going to be saying more about that in weeks to come, this holy war that they would conquer the land. And part of that was God's judgment on the people groups, those groups that were in the land. But think of what a fearful thing it is to know that you're going up against King Og, you know, maybe bigger than Goliath. I'm not sure how tall he was, but he had a really big bed. And there's this promise in chapter 3 at the beginning when, uh, when they turned to go up against King Og in verse 2. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And then at the end, near the end of chapter 3 in verse 22, You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. There's this refrain over and over again, do not fear them. In fact, he's saying, I am spreading the dread and the fear in all the peoples under the whole heaven of you because I am your God and I fight for you. It's not that you're great and powerful. It's that I am your God. This idea that scripture clearly reiterates again and again that trust in the Lord makes us bold. Proverbs says the righteous are bold as a lion. And we know that that's not because we're really powerful. In fact, we may still feel very weak. And the truth is, in reality, you and I are very weak in terms of the battles that God calls us to fight, not physical warfare necessarily, but in the kingdom of God as it advances. 
this idea that God is fighting for us in his power and might, in the spiritual warfare we are engaged in. We don't have to give way to fear. And I think there's a lot of fear in our day as we see our culture backing away from its Christian heritage and its Christian roots. And the culture seems more and more set against the people of God and anyone who would dare to stand for the word of God. And the Lord says, do not be afraid. I fight for you. He tells us that as well. I was reading an article the other day about a Chinese home church in a province of mainland China that now decided they wouldn't be a hidden house church anymore. They would go public. And at first, everyone was really afraid because they rented public space. They put a sign up. This was in a commercial area, just like we would do here. And they put up a website, and they had all the church officers' phone numbers and email addresses on the website. And they just had the attitude, if they shut us down, they shut us down. What more can they do? And they live with that every day still. And so they began a classical Christian school and began to train students. And that was blessed by the Lord. And so finally they said, well, let's start a teacher training school. And they started a certificate program to train teachers because other classical Christian schools began to be started out. And then they said, we need a master's degree for this. And all the while, the pastor said to to the person interviewing him, look, we don't know if the government's going to shut us down completely tomorrow. They could do that. But we don't want to ask ourselves down the road, what if the Lord would have allowed us to continue to operate? We don't want to say, oh, we gave way to fear. It was a really interesting interview, and after I read that, I just thought, how do we face those same issues in our society? Trusting in the faithfulness of God enables you and me to move ahead without fear to the glory of God. We do not face literal giants anymore like Og, but we face the giants in the land that are still there. And so I would call you, in God's word, do not give way to fear. Trust in the Lord's redeeming love. Trust that even under discipline, the Lord is at work producing patience and perseverance. And trust that it is the Lord who goes with us to his glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this ancient history in one sense, but this ancient history that is the word of God that still speaks to us today in a very real and powerful way. And we ask that you would help us to rest in you to rest in your word, your promises for our good and blessing, no matter how difficult life may be, or no matter how blessed and overflowing life may be, help us to seek to walk in faithfulness to you because we trust in you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.